Hey friends and welcome to episode 004 of Mastication Nation, the podcast that brings you all that is wonderful about food without the need for a farm or a table. Well, I think that's an, uh, an Americanism, isn't it? Farm to table. Yeah, not only is it an Americanism, I believe it's like I think we mentioned when we were talking about Chez Panis. I'm pretty sure uh, Alice Waters coined that phrase, but it's the, you know, it's the concept of not wasting anything and having, uh, I believe that's actually a term that means you can't source any of your ingredients from more than 60 miles away. Oh, that's the general rule in the Bay Area. And do you know what I say to that? What? What a load of balls. <laughs> I mean, given the fact that everyone puts sushi so high up on like the ethereal food, and if you had known how far your sushi has traveled to come to your plate, yeah, that's not farm to table or should we say sea to table. That's uh, thousands upon thousands of miles in less than 24 hours. We should we should talk about that. We should have a whole, a whole episode on that. And it could be on local. We could do it for L for local. We could do it S for sustainable. Uh, we could do it for O for organic. There's a million ways we could talk about this because I think it's not nearly as cut and dry as people think. But we're, what, 18 seconds in and we're already <laughs> diverging. So it's been a couple of weeks since we last recorded. Uh, I flew over to California to uh, to attend a memorial service for someone that was very near and dear to both Will and I. So it was a good opportunity to catch up, but that's why we didn't record. But we are back for episode four, and we'll talk about what that topic is just um, in a moment. But thank you, everybody, for your... Your love of episode three, which turned out to be pretty controversial. Chili. Yeah. I, I was thinking about this earlier. I said, uh, while we're reviewing some of the, the Twitter and Facebook responses, um, there was quite a high level of sectarian violence in the comment sections. <laughs> which, which, given the fact that we had a subject in the sense of Chile that is, uh, really does come down to geographic location, I was kind of expecting it. Yeah. But, you know, it, was, it flared up from time to time. It did flare from time to time, and I also thought that, yes, there was a lot of people going, no, my way is the right way, but there were a lot of people going, yeah, you know, I, I dig this style, but I prefer that style as well, except for Cincinnati Chili. Everybody sort of agreed with us that that was a little bit weird. Someone, oh, Stephen Ballot, who's a regular listener of, of, of the show and of Layovers, said, uh, no beans chili is, is is the spaghetti meatball of the of the bolognese world. I quite liked that. That was good. That was in reference to our comparisons to uh, Cincinnati chili being like spaghetti bolognese. But 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 your buddy Alex Ostriker had some, which if you haven't been keeping score, is the single greatest name any human has ever been adorned with. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he, said, he basically said, uh, don't knock Cincinnati-style chili until you've tried it. And I Mr. Will... Ostriker, you have to quantify that <laughs> comment. Further reading, further talking, um, you know, a lot of people put Cincinnati chili on hot dogs, which mm. I think is a better option than than on on spaghetti. Um, so I could I could I could see that I could play with that. It's the it's the chili actually in uh, on spaghetti. And my father in law, who's actually currently staying with me in San Francisco right now, or Berkeley right now, posted our. Um, our episode onto his Facebook wall, knowing that he had uh, a number of Texan friends and a number of uh, friends from Cincinnati. Uh, and he was telling me over dinner last night, actually, that um, he and his friend uh, Jim have this uh, ongoing battle on, on supremacy between Boston and Cincinnati on sports stuff. 
Uh, and they made a friendly bet a couple – I think it was last year. I think it was whoever lost had to send foodstuffs from their region to the winner. And the Patriots obviously did much better than the Cincinnati uh, Bengals this year and in, in American football. And uh, Wayne was sent uh, a case of in-the-can Cincinnati chili. And a Wayne, case. yeah, and Wayne was not so keen on it. Tried it, wasn't too sure about it. Uh, he said, like, you know, if you put some stuff in there and, and sort of bulked it up a little bit and uh, tried to make it more like his usual chili, he would have liked it. But uh, I think, I think Jim, uh, you, that was more of a punishment than a prize for sending that to him. Well, see, uh, that was my Wayne. question because somebody else said this uh, in the comments and. and Feedback to the episode was that if you took the spaghetti out of the equation, that Cincinnati Cincinnati chili is actually pretty good. And I'd, I'd be interested to try it. But the more I talked about and actually I made my chili a couple of days after we recorded. And I think looking at all of the research that we've done and comparing mine, it was like Oklahoma chili. I'd like to give te- uh, Texas chili a try. I'd like to give Cincinnati chili a try. But somebody said that one of the best ways that you can experience chili is to go to a chili cook-off. And the one that they recommended was in Big Bend, this chili cook-off that they have in the World Champion Chili Cook-off in Big Bend. And I'd like to try that. But this day. is this flies in the face of, of uh, we called out our friend uh, Valerie, who lives in Texas, and uh, asked her her thoughts on, on, on Texas chili or just chili in general. And she uh, tweeted us, hey, fellas, uh, I don't make a lot of chili, but I fur it with a little bit of sweetness and cubed beef, no beans, FFS. Uh, which I won't say because we're we're a you know non explicit po- yeah family friendly podcast. She also said, "Bonus pro tip from a Texan: Never go to some janky chili cook-off. Ninety-eight percent of that shiz is inedible." Hashtag fact. So I think we've got some oh, um, some again. You know, it's it's been three weeks and the fighting is still happening. Yeah, it would be very interesting. I'd love to go to a chili cook-off. I think I think it would be fun. Uh, but thank you very much, and thank you for the reviews. They keep coming in. If you have 10 seconds, jump on iTunes and uh, drop us a review, positive or negative. We just want to know what you think. And we're going to keep going because you keep listening, and that's wonderful. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, Will, what are you drinking on this Sunday I am drinking blue powerade because uh gross it's what will never cra- drink anything blue isn't that the golden rule it's what will craves um <laughs> to get the idiocracy reference in there uh no i was actually uh, yesterday i was training for the ride that we mentioned uh, PMC, yes. with both the in-law uh, both the father-in-laws your father-in-law and my father-in-law and let's just say the uh the hills in the big uh the three bears region of the east bay murdered me and so i needed uh to replace my electrolytes uh this morning yes uh, i saw you did about uh, 1400 feet of climbing in uh in not a very long distance so well yeah, played for that there was unfortunately there was a roadblock um allowing us not allowing us sorry to complete the entire loop so we had to return on ourselves a little bit which was a little annoying because um at one point i'd hit like about 35 miles an hour coming down a hill and then realizing i had to climb back up that hill was not fun oh <laughs> gross yeah yeah, so uh, that's what I'm drinking. I'm, I'm I had a couple of um, Sculpin IPAs last night, um, which is a lo- uh, which is a fantastic West Coast brewery out here. But uh, this morning it's uh, it's all about getting hydrated again. There you go, very wise. And speaking of getting hydrated, I am drinking a 1.8 liter bottle of Tesco Everyday Value sparkling water. And I drink one of these bottles a day. Uh, so if I go full Rick Sanchez at some point in this podcast. 
You'll know why, because I've ingested 1.8 liters of highly carbonated liquid, um, but it is good. I have to ask you, has the LaCroix trend kicked off in England yet? I don't know what that is, but that doesn't mean anything. LaCroix is, um, if you want to know, the, one of the most um, interesting and successful examples of, uh, I wouldn't say mom and pop, but a small uh, soda company going up against the big two, your your, your Schweppes and your um, and your Pepsi. You you look at LaCroix, they are uh, a flavored uh, water, sparkling water company that just went after the millennial market, the sort of uh, really big in... in, in uh, um, San Francisco, LA, New York. And I don't know what they did. I think they got into Target and then it just blew up from there. They got some social influencers push, to push it out. Now you go absolutely everywhere and you find liqueur. What is it flavored? Yeah, yeah. So it's a bunch of different flavors. Um, the one that my wife Kate has in the house most of the times is Pomplemousse, uh, which is grapefruit mm -hmm. to our non-French speaking friends. But it basically just tastes like, what was a clear soda back in the day? The, crystal, not Crystal Geyser. Crystal Geyser? No, no. Oh, yeah, that that's still around. But what was the 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 clear, New York Seltzer? The clear Coke. Oh well, there was yeah, there was that. Yeah, but I, whenever I taste it, I'm like I'm expecting it to not taste like anything, just like soda water or, or sparkling water. Oh, yeah. And I taste it, and I'm like, what, what, that doesn't taste right. Um, so it's not my thing, but um, everybody seems to be drinking it here, and I'm I'm surprised it hasn't made. I the, just I like I like my uh, one point. What is yeah? No, it's two liters. Holy crap! It's two liters. It's seventeen p. So, that's uh, about twelve cents. No, other way around. No, no Sorry. it's about, about twenty-two cents, yeah, twenty 20. cents even now with, uh, with the Brexit nonsense. I don't want it flavored. I want it to taste literally like nothing, and I just chug it all day. Best thing you ate since we last recorded. I know that's been a while, but so uh, yeah. So I've been there. I've been in a couple of different places since we last recorded. I was in Denver all last week. Uh, I was with you in Livermore, California, the weekend before that. Um, and I had, I had some. I I joked. Um, when I was in Denver that my team wanted to take me out to lunch on my last day in the office. And they were like, yeah, we're going to take you to, to tacos. I'm like, uh, you're taking the kid from California to tacos on the outskirts of Denver. Okay. Well, let's, let's see. So, uh, we were into this place called our tacos and it's like two fifty dollars, two fifty a taco. And so the rest of the team orders like five or six each. I'm like, okay, I, I got to get on a plane. So I'm not going to order too many. I have to say it was surprisingly good. I got a, and they weren't trying to be Mexican. They weren't trying to be like authentic. So I had a brisket taco, which was nice. very good. I had a pulled, par pulled pork taco and I had a fried chicken taco and they were all fantastic. And their habanero hot sauce was was fantastic. I thought it was really good because they weren't trying to be Mexican. Um, you know, the fact that um, if you try to do that, you can get called up on it not being authentic. But they, they found the market that they want to, wanted to go after and, and it was solid. And it's our tacos in, uh, in, Broomfield, Cal in Broomfield, Colorado. Sorry. So is Denver, no, Denver is not west of the Rockies, is it? It's on the, it's kind of in, it's in the middle of the Rockies. It's in the middle so, of the Rockies. Because they always say, don't eat, ta don't eat tacos. East of the Rockies. So I guess Denver is like as far as you're going to go before it all falls apart. Yeah. Uh -huh. I mean, I was trying to find, I didn't really have time to sort of explore Denver too much and eat that one thing people consider to be Denver besides, you know, Rocky Mountain Oysters, which if you know what that is, then, you know, share that in joke. A weird, I'm not a fan. Weirdly, I saw a lot of pizza places and all of them had pineapple on it, which was weird. Oh, that's interesting. Well, maybe it was in... 
uh, homage to the to the creator of the Hawaiian pizza who sadly passed last month. So maybe everybody was uh, maybe they were doing that, doing and that. that was just a coincidence that I was in it's town. It's like the, the twenty one pineapple salute, exactly to the man exactly. that changed the face of consumer pizza forever. My my choice is very very easy. Uh, I've eaten many wonderful things in the last couple of weeks, but I was uh, as I mentioned earlier in California just for the weekend last weekend. And on my way to the airport on Sunday, I went to In-N-Out in Millbrae, which is right across 101 from San Francisco Airport. Uh, got my double-double animal style and animal style fries to go. And I drove to the Bayshore Park and sat in the shade because it was friggin' hot that day and watched the airplanes come in and go for about an hour and a half before my flight. And it was Wonderful! It was my happy food in my happy place. That was more of an overall sensory sensory experience as opposed yeah, to yeah. just the food. The smell of jet fuel and a double double burger is basically as good as it gets. I was convinced that you were going to say because uh, you posted it on your Instagram. I can't remember if it was on your personal one or the attaché oh, yeah. one. The the pork product from uh, from Berlin. And if you haven't, no, uh, no, it wasn't Berlin. Oh, where it was wasn't it? Berlin? It was in Madrid. And yes, that would have been if I hadn't gone to In and Out. This would have been a no brainer. So it was um, it was Chicharron in in Madrid at this place called Casa Pepe, which is a you know it's just a dive bar essentially. And my good friend Alex Barrera took me to, and it's this it's basically perfect Chicharron. If you don't follow me on Instagram, it's uh, my username just like it is on Twitter is Cube Dweller, all one word. And this stuff was was just phenomenal. They're famous for their chicken wings. So you order a pint of beer, you get a plate of chicken wings, whether you like it or not. Uh, and the chicharron were just beautiful fried pork on the outs, uh, fried on the outside, still moist and tender in the middle, life changing, and the perfect food to have with a very very cold beer. So that that would have been number two. Thank you for reminding me. And and not to get um, too controversial, um, but I don't really like uh, Mexican style chicharrones because I feel it's too much of the skin and, and you know, not really much of the fat or the meat. Like the, the European style chicharrones or pork cracklings in England, I feel have the more layers going on as opposed to just the fried skin. And so that what you what I saw on your Instagram was like Nirvana. I want to try that at some point in my life. Yeah. And I think they are very different. I think they're different as a category, yeah. but yes, this was this was like nothing I'd ever experienced. I just could not st- stop eating them. Um, but another thing that I cannot stop eating is what we're going to talk about today. Today is D, and so we are talking about, I think, as a category, one of my favorite foods in the whole world. Not a single person guessed this right on social media, but today we are talking about dim sum. Everybody should have guessed that. I talk about it all the time. And there's not like there's any huge heavy hitters in the in the D world as far as what we I mean yes there's duck there's drinks donuts there's do- oh, donuts good point. But for me and, and and talking to you I think there was no there was no question about what we were going to do for for D. I mean look we we love your suggestions keep sending them in. Uh but I think we sort of uh, railroaded the conversations toward dim sum on this one. Yeah, and I I think it's uh it's I love dim sum. I, I took my, my family to Hong Kong over Easter, and my six-year-old now just demands it all the time. I love dim sum. Do you like dim sum? I love it. No, I mean, 
for those again that didn't know, um, the reason that the three brothers were in boarding school in England is because uh, our parents were living in Hong Kong for the majority of my childhood. Um, obviously, most of your teens, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. And so when we were living there, I was a very picky eater, and I really didn't sort of get into dim sum until I went back as an, uh, as a later teen slash adult. But it's something that I could have, you know almost every day because it's so variable yeah, and, and that's the thing i think that's we'll get into the definition of it in a second but yeah my experience was the same we were uh our parents weren't massively adventurous eaters and there before we weren't hugely adventurous eaters as kids but dim sum is something that i've i've grown to love and i seek it out everywhere i go and it is it is it's it's a broad term that can mean a lot of things but actually you know, the, the definition in the discussion isn't as broad as I thought it was going to be. I thought this was going to be like encyclopedic levels of research necessary, but it's not. It's one of the few uh, food – food – yes, it's one of the major food groups now, dim sum. It's on the pyramid. Uh, that it, yeah, exactly. It really should be. Is, it isn't that codified. It's, it's, it's very broad. And, it, and, and, the, and the term dim sum can actually mean the dishes themselves or the meal like a dim sum brunch. And essentially, it's like it's a loose collection of small dishes that are served on small plates that are either steamed or fried. They can be served as, as the meal themselves or as, a, as an appetizer or as a snack. I guess in a way, you could refer to it as Chinese tapas, but I really don't think that does it justice because it's not nearly something, it's not just something that you have with a drink, although specific drinks are at the heart and soul of dim sum. It's it's the reason for gathering, and and that's the focal point. It's a very very social thing. I like the fact that dim sum means not only the the pieces of of, of food, but also the event itself. Like you mentioned, a dim sum, a dim sum brunch, um, and unlike tapas, which is sort of secondary to your drink. Um, you know, when you're in Spain, you're having your you're having your drink. You order your drink, and then they just throw some uh, tapas at you, and it can be fantastic. You know, people get together. I, I would almost put it as the the Cantonese Sunday roast. It's where you get all the family together. That's a lovely way of putting it. And and you get together in the in the in the morning of, of uh, Sunday. Get grandma and you know um, have your two hours of eating dim sum. And for a country like Hong Kong, where this sort of originated from, that is so fast, that is so energetic, and people don't have time to sit down. It is one of the only meals that I remember where people actually take their time um, and enjoy it. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I think that that's a very important point. And it's, it's quite rare, I think, that a tradition has lasted this long because it it started as as a, an extension of tea houses or yum cha, which, which literally means to drink tea. And of course, that goes back thousands of years in, in Chinese culture. But along the Silk Road, which is, the, of course, the, the historic and famous trading route, uh, these tea houses were established along the way. Uh, to give people, obviously, tea. And so you'd have these places that were the almost milestones where people would rest and they would have they would have some tea. And then in the third century, this imperial physician wrote, and there is it's there's some sketchy science that was the third century, of course, said that if you combined tea with food, uh, you would then have uh, excessive weight gain. This was his <laughs> his theory. So, and people were like, oh, okay, well, we shouldn't eat when we should just drink tea at these at these restaurants. But then people later figured out that actually tea helps with digestion. So they kind of 
they did an about turn and these all these tea house owners started serving these various snacks. So in a way, it is kind of like tapas that that that, that the forebearer was this drink. drink tea and then these guys these these tea house owners started combining it with with these various snacks and i think that's the thing is like if you if you picture dim sum in your mind you're probably thinking of whichever particular style of dim sum or or dish that you like and we'll get onto that in a minute but they are all these sort of bite-sized things that hasn't changed in 2000 years really yeah, and I, I also believe that it, it's kind of weird to think that the roadside or uh, or freeway side rest stops, your 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 chilies, your Applebee's, were inspired by uh, you know uh, third century tea houses along the Silk Road. It was like for the weary traveler to pull in and and, and have a, a bite to eat and something to drink. Um, I also think that the um, the concept of, of of dim sum is not, as you mentioned, it's not codified, but it's also not. There's, I'm sure there is now in the in the abs- in the um, advent of social media, but there's not warring factions of what it is. I, I remember reading an article or, or a piece on the fact that some of the most traditional dim sums are take their influences from all those places along the Silk Road. Yeah. And no one says, well, we do it better in this area than you. It just all kind of married together and ended up in, in Canton, in, in Hong Kong, in the southeast of China, where it really took root. Yeah, and I think that that's an important point. This is a is a traditionally can- Southern Chinese or Cantonese creation in terms of its creation, but it certainly spread throughout its, out, out China and now, of course, the world. And you know, you can go to different regions throughout China and they will have their specialty or specialty dishes that you can find in other places, but I don't think that they're as good. And, you know, one of those is uh, Shenzhen Bao, which we'll come on to in a little bit, which is Shanghai Fried Dumplings. But each, you know, broadly... You're right. It doesn't, you know, that if you look at a dim sum menu in San Francisco and you look at one in Taipei and you look at one in Hong Kong, there will be the 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 standard treasures that always appear. And then there's the interpretations. There's the things that have, you know, Malaysian influence or Japanese influence. And no one's like, no, you can't do that because dim sum is so much more of a of a state of mind than this sort of really militant definition of a dish or or set of dishes. And I, that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. And I think that the, so sort of jumping into the, the etymology of the word dim sum, the translation, it literally translates from, from Chinese, or sorry, from Cantonese into uh, little, one word means little or point or small, and the other word translates into heart, amount, you know. So it's like little amounts of something that fills you internally at a, at a base level. And so it's the little sizes. We all know it's like, you know, little rolls, little steamed, uh, you know, uh, dumplings, whatever it might be. But it also fulfills you at a, at a almost spiritual level. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's lovely. And also, I think that there's a reference to the shape of these things almost being heart-shaped, especially some of the, uh, the steamed ones. And, mm-hmm. you know, the taking of tea, especially in Japan and in northern China, uh, is, is and remains a very... A serene, calm, for the most case, practice. It's generally peaceful and relaxing. But as soon as dim sum was was entered the mix, and and our our beautiful, wonderful uh, Hong Hong Kong <laughs> influence happened, it became this you know transformed from this sort of peaceful, restful thing into a very social, loud, communal family experience. Which which is great. You go to a dim sum joint, and it's never going to be quiet. 
there's there's families and kids are welcome and you said you know grandma and and grandpa are there and you know the, the Sunday lunch thing is absolutely spot on and I think it, it's it's a wonderful thing and even before we get into the details of dim sum I think it's you know next time you're in any city that it's got a traditional dim sum place go even if you don't speak the alika English just point at stuff and that's the great thing about about dim sum is that for the most part you get to see what you're ordering before you before it comes to you it's almost like denny's <laughs> I, I, yeah, gross um but also i mean like they're so small that if you don't like something something it's not is literally coming around the corner at any moment dim sum itself we've talked about what it is as a as a category and and as a an event almost but what actually does it mean will oh. enlighten us <laughs> uh well i mean it is at a base level dumplings. They are a variety of different styles of dumplings, whether they're pan fried, they're steamed, they're, um, you know, there's a number of different ways that they're cooked, but it's generally uh, dumplings with hidden goodness inside. And they're prepared in different ways. So yeah, there, there's, there's, there's dumplings, which are kind of the base set. And, you know, of those dumplings, they can be steamed, uh, they can be, they can be fried, they can be deep fried or pan fried. So there's all these different types of, of of ways of doing it. And then you've got things like spring rolls. You've got the buns, which are these beautiful, white, fluffy, almost marshmallow in texture, but definitely not in flavor. Things like um, char siu bao, which is filled with barbecued pork. And those are just the most wonderful things. Types of cake, savory and sweet, and then these, you know, and then the other. And you can, you, you know, you can also get uh, vegetables of any description as well. So you have this sort of this myriad of dishes in front of you of all colors and textures and flavors, some hot, mo it's mostly hot, some cold, that everybody has a go at. And it's almost, um, I mean, obviously you are, as the consumer are pretty much in charge of what you, uh, what you pick. Um, however, they are designed that there are, dishes there that are palate cleansers between some of the more aggressive things. I remember, uh, you know, having turnip cakes that were, you know, more on the mild side before jumping into a chasu or or something along those lines, which is so rich and, and not spicy, but, you know, um, flavorful. Um, so maybe mm -hmm. we should jump into some of the some of the big names of the of the dumpling world, the um, the, the rock stars, as, as it were. Yeah, let's I think we have to start with the granddaddy of all of them all, which is Xiaolong which uh, you may have seen them on the menu uh, as soup dumplings. And they are these, they are dumplings and they're in a kind of glutinous parcel. Uh, and in the middle, it's almost invariably pork in this sort of bubble of, of scaldingly hot soup. And one of the, the places that you may all be familiar with, Din Tai Fung, which is a Taiwanese chain that has uh, spread across the world and is, is very, very popular, especially in the West, uh, actually have a separate menu card for instructions on how to eat uh, Xiaolongbao, mainly so that you don't scold the inside of your face, mm -hmm. uh, but also to, so that you enjoy them. And essentially, they they look like little like glutinous, yellowy, light brown, Hershey Kiss-shaped balls of wonder. And you pick them up with your chopsticks, and you put them into your, your spoon, and you... Pierce it. One of the ways you can do it, this is slightly controversial, yeah, is you is you pierce it for two reasons. One, to release the scalding hot liquid from its prison, uh, and so that you can then eat the 
eat the dumpling itself and then enjoy the soup as well. And there's various kind of, you know, things that go with it, accessories, if you will, chili sauce or or other ways of doing it uh, as well, ginger, um, that, that type of thing. But that's like, that's probably the most famous. And it's, it's, it's usually an unleavened dough and minced pork with a little bit of aspect to hold it all together. So I was watching the uh, No Reservations episode with Bourdain in, in Taiwan, where he goes to the original uh, Din Tai Fung, and they do a whole section on, on, on the soup dumplings. But also the fact is that these guys who are the, the creators of the dim sum um, you know, in the kitchen are so meticulous with the perfection of these uh of these dumplings that you know you said that they fold it's almost like a hershey kish but they fold it on itself and crimp these these dumplings uh you know to be solid so that they can they can be cooked um and they have i can't remember the exact number but within reason they almost always get like the 95 crimps every single time wow see that's just crazy and it's just their level of, of attention to detail on that even though it's something that's going to be consumed uh in, in a fraction of a moment but you know the fact is they're also going to kick out a thousand of these in, in in a dinner service or a brunch service but they still take that level of of uh intensity and respect for what they're doing just because of the historical relevance and and um importance of what dim sum means to the, the cantonese people the taiwanese people whoever it may be it's just showing respect in your work yeah and i think there's also like a, almost like a quality control thing there as well mm-hmm. that you know you, you you want it to be consistent no matter where you go especially when you're when they've you know extended it as far and wide as they have to be able to you know know that if you go into one in in Hong Kong or San Francisco or or anywhere else in the world it's going to be the you know very similar experience and I've been to Din Tai Fungs all over the place and they are amazingly consistent they're opening one in London very soon I'm excited about that so yeah Xiaolongbao is is the kind of you know, if you think of dim sum, generally you're picturing some variation of Xiaolongbao. The next one that I only discovered when I went to Shanghai last year was Shenzhenbao, which is these pan-fried ones. So you get the the same consistency on the top as the as the the Xiaolongbao, but on the bottom it's got it's like this crispy, crunchy, pot stickery type of texture and crunch, and it's just so delicious and the ones that we had in shanghai had various different fillings so you'd have the traditional pork but then we had one with crawfish in it as well uh, and they're they've got the soup as well and they're just absolutely delicious and you can find these and, and this is the same with with most types you can go to a big dim sum joint which will have all these different types and we'll go into the how they're served and how you order in a, in a second but then in, especially in places big cities in china you can go to a tiny closet sized hole in the wall like literally take out window and they'll get they'll specialize in a particular type of dumpling and we went and found all these places that you know, one specialized in, in Xiaolongbao, one specialized in Shenzhenbao, and they were invariably incredible and incredibly cheap as well. But I think of all of the types of dim sum that I've tried, Shenzhenbao is my favorite. Have you had them? I don't think I have. I've had I've had dumplings that are very similar in style uh, with the sort of crispy bottom um, and I like that. I like that content, that that contrast in in texture. Um, but I've never had the Shanghai version, so I'll see if there's a place in San Francisco doing it. Otherwise, it will be uh, very. You know, I can't even find it in in Hong Kong. Uh, mm, wow, they're, okay. they're very they're very hard to find. 
I found outside of Shanghai. And the cool thing is, is that they are actually a breakfast thing. And, and, you know, usually people think of Chinese breakfast and like, I'm not, you know, I don't really like congee and that's, that's fine. I do congee. In, in Shanghai, you've got Jiang Bin, which is like the Chinese breakfast burrito. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got, You've got uh, uh, not not bao, uh, Shenzhen bao, which is again a a very um, breakfasty dish. So you're you're set. There's all kinds of great stuff, but I love Shenzhen bao. So I think um, we need to to jump down to um, cha su bao. You mentioned it earlier, but it is one of those ones with probably the next one we're going to talk about, which is the most. Uh, most maligned, most misrepresented, most poorly executed, but is also, for me, my favorite dumpling. Uh, cha su means roast pork in Cantonese. Uh, if you ever go to... Barbecued pork. Barbecued pork, sorry. Because um, if you ever go to any of the places that you see the hanging ducks in Hong Kong or any Chinatown, you can get some fantastic char su in those places. So they're taking that meat and putting it into a dumpling. And if you haven't noticed, these all end in the word bao, which basically means roll, means dumpling. Um, so it's that fantastic... Uh, uh, barbecue uh, pork in a steamed bun. And you'll find them on most uh, like American Chinese takeout places, and they're not good. They're grainy. The steam, the, the the buns are, you know, crumbly. The the, the pork is just reused um, yeah. pork from other dishes. Um, whilst if you go to some of the best places, which we'll talk about in a bit, it is a staple that you need to have at least once at any of the uh, the, the dumpling places at the the dim sum places you're going to. And there's two versions. Really, there's there's the baked and the steamed. And the steamed is the one that I uh, – actually, I love both of them. But the steamed is the one I was referring to earlier that's almost got that marshmallowy texture, almost like it's like it's par-baked dough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's, it's kind of malleable, almost slightly tacky. Uh, it's easy to pull apart. It's just delicious. And then the other one is baked. And the dough is actually – is different. Yep. Uh, it's got this glazed on it, uh, it uh, and so it's it's baked traditionally. So it's browned. It's almost like a like a like a bread roll. Well, it's, it's sweeter dough than than a bread roll. It almost reminds me of like a bad one is like a uh, barbecue pork hot pocket, but like yeah. the good ones are are, are ethereal because um, they have that crunch or that you know like that, that texture from the glaze that you're not finding in most other dim sum dishes. Uh, I, when I was in Hong Kong last, and we went to Din Tai Fung for for lunch. Uh, one day and we had we ordered the baked version of the cha su bao and uh, ordered another round and, and another round and so yeah, everyone was like and then the 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 inside of it as well as saying is this is is this char siu which is this sweet uh slow roasted bar or barbecued or barbecue style pork tenderloin and then it's diced up and mixed in with oyster sauce and hoisin uh sesame oil chinese uh wine uh, rice vinegar and some soy sauce and various, various other things. So you get this wonderfully sweet, sticky, salty, astringent flavor, and it's just to die for. If you've been to a Hawaiian restaurant, they have something called manapua, which is very, very similar. In fact, all along the Pacific Rim, there is a riff on on this. I'm not sure who came up with it first. I don't care because they're all uh, absolutely delicious. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I had a similar one. Just obviously the the um, the internal seasonings might be a little different, but I think I had a similar one in Manila when I was last there because the Filipinos love their pork, so it would make a lot of sense there as well. Um, but I never thought about it, the fact that you do have it all around the Pacific Rim or uh, well, in pork-heavy countries, let's put it that way. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, the next one I think a lot of you will have seen is Hargao, 
which is the the shrimp dumplings. They're almost in this translucent tapioca version of the of the shell, if you will, that you can see right through. You can see the shrimp inside, and those are steamed as well. And uh, they sometimes come in a yellower version of the of the outside, but they're that that's more like a like a, a shumai as well, which is just fantastic as well. the The cool thing about shumai is that it's pork and prawns, which I mean, who can you argue with that? The best surf and turf combinations. Yeah, exactly. And that's so that's um that's pork and that's that shrimp, and sometimes it comes with mushroom. Uh, and then the, the the again in this these parcels as well. I don't know why, but I feel like um, shumai had like it by itself had its own vogue in like the nineties. I just remember watching a lot of like sitcoms and American TV shows, and people like, oh, do you want to go get shumai? Like it was its own, you know, its own thing. It wasn't like, hey, do you want to go get dim sum or hey, do you want to go get Chinese food? People were like, hey, what do you feel about shumai? And I love it, but I feel like you know a lot of people might be remembering an old version of it or like a bastardization version of it, mm-hmm. um, but. But, you know, I, I think it's fantastic. And it's usually one of the first things that when we move into the more complex, you know, um, dumplings, uh, that's one of the first things I'll order. I usually start with a soup lump, oh, a pellet, pellet cleanser, but then move into a soup dumpling and then, uh, you know, something more like a, a, a cake, like a turnip cake or something like that. And then into your more aggressive, more flavor forward um things to round out but that's the great thing about um about dim sum is that it's not a menu in the sense like it's not like where you have to order in a certain way if someone comes if one of the people come by uh you can just say hey i want another one of those or i'm going to sort of you know choose the the way i want to navigate my evening or my brunch or whatever it might be it's up to you yeah, no, absolutely. And I think you, you can, because the menus generally are so varied at these dim sum restaurants that you can go for whatever you want, which is great. So, the, the, I mean, the other one I think that it, we, we have to talk about in the dumpling range is, uh, is guo tea or, or chow si, depending on where you are, uh, which are, it literally, it translates to pot stick. They're pot stickers. Everybody knows pot stickers and they are considered uh, dim sum, traditional dim sum. And they are incredibly prevalent on all dishes they may be called something else but they will arrive exactly how you would expect them to arrive arrive and there's sort of the the folded symmetrical almost moon shape dumplings and they're full with filled with uh pork uh, sometimes chicken or beef uh and cabbage sometimes scallions ginger and that is rice wine stuff as well so they're they've got a bunch of different flavors i love those things they're so freaking satisfying yeah, yeah. and they exactly they give them a nice sort of crunch salt and they can be filled with such wonderful ingredients um i want to shift gear a little bit here and, and sort of uh homage uh your your great attache guides in a sense like so you find yourself as a traveler you're you may be in southeast asia or maybe you're just in chinatown in your local city you want to try dim sum what are the main things that you need to know to not feel overwhelmed so what gets you in out and around your favorite dim sum place well you cannot go wrong with any of the ones that we've mentioned today hao gao jialong bao any of those shenzhen bao the the pot stickers which if you're in the u.s almost invariably will be referred to as as pot stickers but in terms of when you first walk into a dim sum restaurant, and and particularly the ones I've seen in California, the the, the quote unquote traditional ones, and they are pretty traditional, it can be loud and overwhelming when you generally can't read what's on the menu. You you don't recognize anybody. You don't recognize the food that they're eating. That can be a little bit overwhelming. So, 
The ones that I've seen in San Francisco, certainly, and there's some very good dim sum joints in San Francisco, use the, the cart method of ordering and serving. And it's basically, you're taken to a table, you may be sharing it with, with other people, and that's fine. That's wonderful, actually. And there will be a host of ladies, almost invariably ladies, pushing around these airline cart-looking things, shouting at you aggressively. <laughs> and so it can be a very overwhelming. What they're doing is they're saying the name of the dish that they have or dishes that they have on their cart. And you'll be able to see almost all of them. And so as they do their circuits around the table, you can wave at them, point at a specific dish. There's no words that need to be exchanged. It's okay. You can grunt and point <laughs> and they will put the dish, this freshly prepared dish on your table and on your table as well will be this order card, and they will stamp their stamp next to what you just ordered and, and write the quantity. And that does two things. They tally up the, the stamps at the end. Each server, in many instances, has their own stamp. It's almost like real-time data analytics for the uh, dim sum restaurant industry, so they can see at the end of the day which servers serve the most things. And they'll go around. Some of them will have steamed dumplings. And the steamed dumplings come in these beautiful bamboo circular baskets and they will they will appear on your table the top will be removed and inside will be these these beautiful dumplings of of, of various different types and then you you know you just keep pointing at the carts as they go around until you can't eat anymore and then your tally is 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 totted up and you you pay at the end that's that's the one i've seen the most there are other ways of doing it as well. The, you can go a la carte and you can just have a menu in front of you and you can a waiter will come along and take your menu. At places like Din Tai Fung, there is an order card on the table and a pen. And you just write down the number next to the, the dish that you want, uh, meaning in terms of quantity, like I want one of these, I want two of these. And they have the sweets, they've got the, the drinks, they've got the beers uh, on there. And then when you're done, Somebody will come and take it away, and eventually all of the food will be brought to you. You can continue to add things onto it. Just because you've done one round doesn't mean you can't do another, as you alluded to in Din Tai Fung. Those are the, the two main methods of ordering. And even at Din Tai Fung, in deepest, darkest Hong Kong, everything was in English. There was pictures on all the menus as well. So there's a companion kind of picture book like Denny's. Well, they've, I mean, like they've gone, you know, they realize that they are, have an international marketplace now and they are a bit more, I wouldn't say upscale, but they are like um, convention sized hall dining rooms. Yeah, they're huge. Um, and so, you know, sort of jumping into uh, my experiences um, with the ordering, ordering process about 18 months ago, almost two years ago, actually, um, a bunch of my friends from San Francisco were going to go to Southeast Asia and I couldn't for work reasons go at the same time. And, you know, they'd never been to Southeast Asia, but, uh, thanks to my, my wonderful wife who gave me permission to jump on a plane within 48 hours notice, I surprised them in Hong Kong. Um, like I said, I grew up there and, and wanted to show them around my old hood. Um, so I got there the day before them and surprised them at the hotel, uh, at the airport. Sorry. So I was able to take these three guys from San Francisco, Alex O'Shriker, Keith, my buddy who runs a, a bar in the city, and our friend Astro to a couple of different places. And we went to, uh, you know, a couple of different dim sum places, but we went to the legendary, the world class 
Tim Ho Wan. And uh, a lot of people know that name uh, in food circles because it is the original, which is in Mong Kok slash the Shamshi Po area of of uh, Kowloon in Hong Kong. The original is the cheapest Michelin starred restaurant in the world. They, was was oh, cause of course, because it follows the, it follows the chef. Um, uh, up until very recently, yeah, it was uh, it was the most. And now there's a, a place, a hawker center uh, uh, in Singapore that that pit them at the post. But for a long time, and it's still very very cheap. But it's still it was, well, it is incredibly cheap. But also, Tim Ho Wan now has uh, three locations in uh, Hong Kong, but also has locations all over the world now. But the original yeah. Tim Ho Wan that you know it's in a not the greatest area, very sort of. Not industrial, but like it was, we were walking to, 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 you know, get lunch and it's like, you know, a welding uh, store next to it. And the other side is like a, you know, a bamboo factory. And it's just like, oh, for making scaffolding. It's, it's, it's an interesting area. And so we're waiting there. And what happens is you, you stand outside and there's a woman in an orange uh, jacket who basically writes a number uh on a piece of paper and then hands it to you and then yells at you when it's your when your number is called and, and it helps know a little bit of cantonese how to count um because they might yell it in chinese first or in cantonese first and then in english but you're just sitting outside or standing outside waiting tops maybe like 20 minutes unless it's like super super crazy times um and then you're bundled into the uh the dining room and, it, and it's small and basically the seats are like basically upturned uh milk cartons almost it's that low uh low tech and then a woman will come over to you and and th- i almost joke that it's a bit like the soup nazi they don't have time for you to be messing around at, at tim ho one and it's like what do you want and you write it down and like we do the, the model which is like you just write down uh the numbers on a piece of paper and then hold the piece of paper up and someone will come around and, and get it um, and it was fantastic. You know, four of us ate there uh, until we were full, and the entire bill plus uh, we didn't drink uh, alcohol; we drank sodas. Uh, came to forty US dollars. It's uh, amazing. And the hilarious thing was, like, we wanted sodas, so we put down sodas on there. But you, there's no option to choose what soda. So she didn't even come over. She just came over with a Fanta and a Seven Up. I'm like, all right, that's what <laughs> we're drinking, I guess. But it's like it's an intent. That was an intense experience, but the food was phenomenal, and it's you know generally with Michelin stars uh it's about the food yes you can have a great environment a, a, you know a fantastic white tablecloth experience but I don't really care about that if the food is fantastic and everyone around you is having a great time yeah and I'm absolutely spot on and I think they are generally very intense environments and and not in a bad way it's they're not no one's trying to be a, a jerk uh it's just they they need to get people in and out of there so that they can maximize, you know, make, make some money. Yeah. And if you're hanging out and you're, you're futzing around, then, then they're not going to make any money. And, you know, that's, that's generally the way it goes. And then finally, in terms of ordering, I've seen a few places that, that employ the Yosushi or the model that Yosushi employed is probably more accurate where depending on what it is, the type of dish, the size of the dish, the portions, uh, each dish uh, comes in a, uh, maybe a different color or a different size and it's stacked up at, at the end of the meal and the various sizes or colors are represent different values. Those are total. So sort of almost like the automated um, sushi conveyor belts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. A little bit more autonomous, but the, the ones that I've seen the most of by far are the carts, which is a fun experience and just ticking off on the on the the order card what you want. And the, um, the last thing I want to touch upon just while you're there, and it goes for pretty much any 
time that you're eating um, Cantonese food or just any um, meal that doesn't require knife and forks and uses chopsticks. Uh, and I think you summed it up very well in your in your Hong Kong episode of Attaché, but it was something that we learned very, very early on in our lives in Hong Kong. Chopsticks are not drumsticks. They are not... Yeah, there's some etiquette involved. Yes, they're, they're, they're not utensils to move anything around. They're not... Um, you shouldn't ever use them for anything that you wouldn't use a knife and fork for. So don't, you know, don't stick your friend with them and think that's funny because you're going to get some weird looks from from everybody else at the tables. And the one that you mentioned on, on the episode, but I remember being very, very young in Hong Kong. And there's a... I, I forget the day, but there's a specific day in, in Cantonese culture, or maybe just Hong Kong in general, where um, families go to their ancestors' graves and leave uh, offerings of fruit, food, uh, and clean the graves up. But they often leave um, in, incense in, 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 um, in rice, isn't it? No, sorry. Yeah, in, yeah, in, in, in the food. In the, in the graves. So it's, it's Ching Ming. Oh, um, thank you. And known as the the tomb sweeping festival, yeah, yeah, and so and so you should never leave your your chopsticks, um, you know, stuck into the food. Uh, you should always leave them by the side of the plate because it is reminiscent of that uh, that that. Yeah, the incense used it at, at at funerals and at and at graves. So, exactly, yeah, it's, it's just very disrespectful. It's, just, it's a small. No one's ever going to say anything to you, you know, if you're a, if you're a tourist. But it's it's about it's about respect. It's about understanding cultures, and you know, ch- chopstick culture is is an important thing to understand and appreciate before you go anywhere that uses that uses chopsticks and, so yeah but that that's probably the most important and when you set them down make sure that they're together and not 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 crossed and the other thing i remember about uh growing up in hong kong and i can't remember who ta- taught me this but um the just on the chopsticks the the concept of using chopsticks i know it's a struggle for some people and it took me years of practice to be competent with them where you hold the chopsticks uh denotes your social class uh, i did not, not know this oh yeah so so um if you've ever been to hong kong or or anywhere in china and you see somebody holding the chopsticks down near the bottom of the of the chopsticks and they've got the bowl near their face and they're basically using it almost as a shovel uh it means that they're it would mean that they were working class and didn't have much time to eat and so we're eating as fast as fast as possible uh, nobility within China would eat with their would would hold the chopsticks almost at the very very end, which means that you don't have much in the way of grip or in the much the way of control. But it meant that you could only take one piece of something at a time and be more slow and dignified. And it showed that you were able to take time with your food, take time with your with whatever you were eating. And it was almost like you know in Europe being pale versus being tan, being pale was, right. was seen as being rich because you didn't have to. Oil. And that was sort of the the thing I learned very very young, and it stuck with me for a long time. I'm a I'm a shoveler, uh, like you know. I'm yeah, and you know, it's very important to point out there is absolutely nothing wrong with shoveling, with bringing the bowl. You know, we're getting we're straying a little bit off of dim sum here, but if you have a bowl of of rice or noodles, it's perfectly ups- acceptable to bring the rice up or the bowl up to your mouth and use the chopsticks to kind of essentially shovel it into your mouth. That, that that's absolutely fine. Uh, there's there's no issue there at all. But yeah, I think it you know etiquette is important and, and another piece of etiquette is because tea is so intrinsically linked with dim sum. I mean, when you when you talk about yum cha, it's essentially known as going for dim sum and this is this brunch tea that we mentioned earlier which is just tea and eating the snacks that we've been speaking at the dim sum. Uh it's a very Cantonese thing, but the the tea itself and how you uh, are given it 
and how you consume it is actually kind of important, especially in the in southern China in the Canton Cantonese regions, especially in Hong Kong. So I think this well, sorry to interrupt you there, but I think this very nicely rolls into the uh, the section that we were going to uh, start doing um, in every episode moving forward. Is like, what would you pair this? dish with and you're already talking about like tea is there's no option here it's it is a tea dish i mean yes we'll talk about other things as well but so to jump in ahead of you you know uh if you are having dim sum have tea and sorry you can jump back into what you were saying yeah no i think that's a great point because yeah they are absolutely intrinsically linked they are inseparable um, so when you are there and you are invariably having your tea there's a few things to remember it's customary for to pour tea for others. Make sure everybody's glass is full or cup is full before you have yours. Um, and when you're when you're pouring your tea uh, to someone on your left, then you use your right hand and vice versa. If you're pouring on the right, use your left hand. You When someone is pouring your tea, and I've seen this, and it, it always intrigued me and fascinated me when I was a kid growing up in Hong Kong. When you, when someone is pouring your tea, you, you tap your fingers, your, usually your index finger, uh, and your middle finger, uh, on the table. You probably hear, hear me doing it now. And this is a way of saying thank you for two reasons. One, it's kind of, uh, it gestures, uh, symbolizes the gesture of bowing, but also in the raucous environment of a dim sum restaurant, they may not actually hear you say thank you. So this is to show overtly and implicitly that you are saying thank you. Now, I just learned this recently when I was researching this episode, but the fingers that you use to to tap actually are supposed to say something. I would be interested to hear from any of our listeners if this is still common practice. You tap with your index finger if you are single huh. and both the index and middle finger if you are married. I would, again, be very interested to know if this is is still true. So um, my buddy Adam Raby, if you're listening, um, you know, he lives in Hong Kong um, and uh, has some Chinese heritage. So I'm going to ask him, uh, Adam, if you're listening, let us know if that's the case. Uh, as a eligible young bachelor yourself, I'm sure you can tell us if that's the case, uh, if you tap with one finger or two. Adam, please let us know. I think it's it's very cool. It's very pragmatic if you think about it, because if you've got a mouthful of Sheng Bao and someone's pouring you tea, you're not going to talk with your mouthful to say thank you, uh, and you, you know create that kind of awkward moment. And if you if you tap, you know you're saying thank you, and you can still invo- enjoy the deliciousness in your mouth. It's, but now, it's almost I, like if you're at a big group and it's like a bunch of people going out together, it's almost like Tinder. Because like if you're tapping with one finger, oh, he's single. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you can use said fingers to kind of you know wave off as well and say no thank you I don't I don't want anymore uh it's it's I love it I think it's very very cool the the um, etiquette on the tea is also very similar so beer is is quite common with dim sum uh usually it's served in a larger than normal bottle and everyone has smaller glasses and you do the same thing where you pour to everybody else you know instant before yourself and and you follow the same rules as tea tea basically is the the thing that d- dictates most other etiquettes for liquids um uh, whether it is it's beer whether it is chinese wine whatever it might be and and so beer is very common it's usually a lager or something on the lighter side not a brunch but yes not a brunch, but if you're having it, yeah, if you're having it in the evening, and I think what what dim sum has done, the popularity is that you can have it at any time of the day these days. Yeah, it, it used to be, and again, I think this is a little bit of a of a cliche, but 
a lot of dim sum joints in Hong Kong would open at like five o'clock in the morning is because it was the equivalent for the uh, of of the coffee shop, especially for uh, more seasoned veterans of our world, the old ladies who just finished their their tai chi in the park would then go and hang out and uh, have some tea and and so they they were they were there as well but now you know with the places that i was talking about with the these little takeaway windows it's now gone to that 24/7 thing so they can serve the 9 to 5ers there's a place in hong kong that we went to with it's a chain but we went there like five or six times called dim dim sum dim dim sum uh, dim dim sum and it's just like a you know it's a modern ish restaurant but they're like you know, 18 Hong Kong dollars each, which is like, uh, like two bucks for very, very good dim sum. It's nothing special. It's not fancy. It's much more of a diner type atmosphere. They're not very big at all. They're like maybe the size of your kitchen at home, but they're good. They're good. So it's much more accessible. It doesn't have to be this kind of, uh, this, this huge half day thing. It can be something that you go and grab. So dim sum can be, I think, a little bit intimidating to the the uninitiated, but I would encourage you go and try it. Go with somebody who who's had it before, who who knows even just a little bit about it, and you'll find something of the thirty or forty dishes that you see on most dim sum restaurant menus. Something that is a life changing experience for you. Yeah, and it may be sweet, it may be fried, it may be steamed, it may be a way of preparing a vegetable. But you will find it. That I can promise you. And I'd also argue dim sum is not a, a food stuff that travels well. It 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 really is, you know, best enjoyed at the place uh, that it's being created. So jump out there, get in, go jump in with both feet, and and you know nothing's going to go wrong. That's going to you know say, hey, that's you know they're going to you're going to be okay. It's not the end of the world. Um, so I, yeah, I, 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 go ahead. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, there, there are places, you know, Din Tai Fung is everywhere. That's a great place to, mm-hmm. to really try it for the first time. They are very patient. Everything has really good descriptions and pictures. The process is easy. If you w- live in San Francisco, uh, Yang Sing is generally pretty consistent and pretty traditional. There's a few, one in the, in the financial district. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's one on the Embarcadero as well. Uh, but every city has got at least one or two really good dim sum joints. So I think so, wrapping up, um, what we'd love to hear from you is, do you guys like dim sum? What are your, some of your favorites? But specifically to the dishes, what are your favorite dumplings and dishes that you get when you go get uh, dim sum? Is there something that we missed out? Is there something that um, you know you think that is uh, an underground treasure that you think everyone should try? Or just the fact that you know there are the classics, but there is that regional or that uh, worldliness to them. I, I wonder if there's like a avocado one in san francisco or something like that um you know is there weird ones that that you think we should try so get back to us via our 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 twitter or us individually or or in the reviews let us know if that's something that you think we should uh, cover off on in our next episode and then absolutely and then one last thing that i wanted to touch upon real quick if you guys don't know alex has put out a kickstarter for uh the attache uh travel guide uh book and so if you love alex's uh award-winning travel show on youtube attache uh jump in there there's still about 24 days left of the uh of the um uh, kickstarter to go and there's some incredible uh perks still available that's very kind of you 
Thank you. Yeah, we we blew through our our target on day one, so that was very satisfying. Um, and yeah, it's uh, it's volume one, so it's Asia, so it's perfect for this for this episode, and it will be uh, yeah. So actually, the the best way to find it, go on Kickstarter.com, search for travel. We are there and very obviously there. So yes, please go in and support us. While we've still hit our target, we have some fun stretch goals coming up and I would love for all of you to get involved in some capacity. Go now and do it. <laughs> uh, well, until <laughs> next time, uh, we'd love to hear suggestions for E um, and then, uh, you know, let us know what you think. Otherwise, uh, have a great week and eat well. Well,